Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. The amazing recordist Chris Watson from Britain takes us on a sound journey to Antarctica where he encounters some of the rarest sounds on Earth. This is certainly the remotest landscape I have ever been recording in. I'm about 78 degrees south on this deep black tongue of lava and pumice surrounded by ice and snow. This is Cape Evans on Ross Island in the Antarctic and I'm just surrounded by the most remarkable, stunning and daunting views I've ever seen under this beautiful bright blue sky with a piercing sun it's 4pm the sun's not going to set it's not going to set for another 2 or 3 months bright burning rays and blistering white reflections off a sea of ice I'm looking out in front of now McMurdo Sound most of it frozen solid to two or three metres but a small silvery streak on the horizon many, many kilometres away where the icebreaker Odin broke up the channel a few days ago and far beyond 60, 70, maybe a hundred kilometres away it's hard to tell in this completely pollution free crystal clear air, the immense mountain range of the trans-Antarctic mountains of continental Antarctica. And west of that, just a few kilometres from here, the Barn Glacier, these huge walls of ice, 100, maybe 200 metres tall, just stop vertical and straight on the beaches. And just north of that, it's just amazing looking around. Just north of that is Mount Erebus, a 4,000 metre high mountain with a volcanic peak. Which even today is these white, wispy plumes of heat and steam escaping from the lava lake. And across to the east and maybe north, this massive, looming monolith. An island, an island at the moment in a sea of ice and icebergs. Inaccessible island. And then just a few metres above this high point, a plain, weather-beaten cross, which commemorates the three men from Shackleton's ill-fated trans-Antarctic expedition who died at this side waiting for Shackleton to cross 
after having laid out fuel and food depots, not knowing that he was never going to get here. And then a hundred metres below on the beach, another bleached wooden hut, that built by Captain Scott in 1911 for himself and his 23 other men who stayed here a couple of winters before he made his attempt to return from the South Pole having reached it just a short time after Amundsen and died on the return journey and then the quietness really difficult place to record there's some Antarctic skewers on a small freshwater pool of, of melted snow down the slope which I occasionally hear but up here there is nothing else maybe a two or three kilometre breeze just carrying over this slope but apart from that this is probably as quiet as it gets on this planet down on the ice it's very different I was there this morning just walking <laughs> walking across the sea or walking across the sea ice to reach a group of Weddell seals that were hauled out but the sea ice is starting to break it's January the 10th today 2010 and the sea ice is lifting away from the Barnes Glacier and also from the, the beaches here and so you can walk across these quite large flows that they rub and scrape together and make this creaking, groaning and bubbling sound which I've recorded underwater with hydrophones underneath the ice shelf. smaller icebergs. The other thing I'm just starting to pick up here is I can see these black shapes across the sea ice waddling towards the land and these are penguins are daily penguins which are on the way back to their colony at Cape Royds which is six or seven miles across the Barn Glacier and another patch of frozen sea where I went a couple of days ago to record this colony of maybe two or three thousand penguins that have still got chicks and amidst this Antarctic quietness it's really startling to come across sounds and behaviour and activity as loud as this
does conjure up all sorts of emotions standing alone in this totally isolated landscape. And my colleagues are a kilometre or so down based at a camp, a New Zealand Antarctic camp. People are here to restore Scott's hut, Terra Nova, here on Cape Evans. But it's easy to escape people here. Just come over a kilometre or so over one of these um, these brows of, of lava and stare out into this wilderness and the distant continent beyond huge clouds carrying over some of the distant peaks and remarkable to think that people would look out from here south a hundred years ago and then step out with sleds onto what remained of the sea ice and pull a thousand pounds of equipment and provisions into those mountains with the aim of walking something like a thousand kilometres through some mountain passes up onto the ice plateau to try and find the South Pole in temperatures of minus 20, minus 30 degrees centigrade for days and weeks. And the interesting thing is, unlike, I guess, virtually every other place on this planet, the soundscape here will have remained the same. Antarctica is a place of extremes. It's the coldest, driest and highest continent on the planet. But now at the moment I'm stood just two metres above sea level because I'm actually stood on top of a frozen sea, the Ross Sea. And bizarrely, we've just landed here in a helicopter on sea ice about 10 kilometres offshore from Ross Island and the sea ice partly has been broken up by an icebreaker coming in to resupply the base at McMurdo and we've flown out here so I can record um, in some of the pools created by the icebreaker so I'm stood on the surface of a frozen sea with about two metres of sea ice below me and then the open ocean the pilots just said, his charts say, we're standing on top of around about 300 metres depth of seawater. And there's a whale just about to surface. to breathe about three metres away from me off this ice edge. Here it comes.
I've also got a pair of hydrophones which uh, I can just dip in on the edge of this sea ice and uh, lower down this ice shelf and just have a listen because I know there are orcas, killer whales in this channel as well. break <laughs> I've almost walked to the South Pole um, but not in true heroic style like Amundsen or Scott I landed here at the South Pole base the US base here this morning um, in a Hercules C-130 transport plane after an amazing flight over the trans-Antarctic mountains and the famous Beardmore Glacier. Uh, and we've been at the base, checked in, put on my extra, extra cold weather gear as advised, because looking at the temperature readouts in the canteen inside, it's uh, at the moment minus 37.5 degrees centigrade out here. Beautiful bright blue day with a very slight breeze but as soon as that breeze catches your skin it burns it um, and so it's it's about the most wrapped up I've ever been and conveniently of course the South Pole is just a few hundred meters out from the main door of the base and it's about 50 or 60 metres in front of me now, so I'll take the last few steps. So this is it. The most remotest place on earth, the South Pole. It may be the remotest, it's certainly not the quietest because there's a large, significant US base here uh, with all the infrastructure that that requires, motorized vehicles. There's an airstrip, um, there's a lot of people working on the roof today, but beyond, there's this 
flat landscape of ice and snow going to this far distant horizon where the ice and snow meets this pale blue line of sky. I think as I, I can sort of scan through 180 degrees, I like to imagine I can actually see the curvature of the Earth, but I don't know, maybe that's just distortion through these high-strength UV goggles, because it's piercingly bright. And then in front of me, the ceremonial South Pole, because, of course, um, why have one pole when you can have two? And there's a ceremonial South Pole, which is this silver ball um, on top of this metre-high red and white diagonally striped pole and a semicircle of international flags. Twelve nations are represented there. And it's sighted right in front of the of the building, the United States Antarctic Program South Polar Base. And then just off a couple of hundred metres to the side is the geographical South Pole, I suppose a historically significant one. And at the moment that's interesting me rather more because it's it's rather more isolated. And I can see a white sign um, and some other sort of brass marker and a flag of the United States so I'm going to wander over there it's tough walking around here. This is the geographic South Pole, elevation 9,301 feet, although as it's been explained to me, because we're also on top of a mountain of ice, the actual altitude is, um, in terms of the oxygenated air, is about 14,000 feet, so even walking a few hundred metres with recording equipment on the level through snow and ice is quite tough. I cannot imagine what it would be like for uh, people a hundred years ago hauling sleds. The only thing apart from a sign and a brass measuring device is this American flag hanging here, which does sound pretty good in this breeze. And there's a simple wooden sign in front of me here, planted in the ice. The geographic South Pole. And to the left, the name Rold Amundsen December the 14th, 1911. And a quotation which must be from his diary. So we arrived and were able to plant our flag at the geographical South Pole. Typically stoical statement from the Norwegian. And then 
opposite to the right. The name Robert F. Scott, January the 17th, 1912. The pole, yes, but under very different circumstances from those expected. But still, this is it, the South Pole. And if I spin round 360 degrees and look to that far distant horizon where the haze and the ice and the snow blur into this vanishingly pale blue sky. Every direction I look in from here, I'm looking north. Well, I've moved away as far as I safely can from any of the construction work and the vehicles and the flapping flags to try and get an atmosphere of what the sound is really like here at the South Pole today, Friday the 15th of January 2010, 16.39 hours local time. Recording. I've been down here in the Antarctic about four weeks now and I realised that the airborne soundscape when I'm away from some of the penguin colonies at least is characterised by this really deep sense of quiet but I realise now it's the sea ice that's really captured my imagination both within it and below the surface and the sounds I've recorded underneath with my hydrophones really do defy description and I know what animals are making these sounds so I think to conclude this piece the best thing I can do is just to introduce the animals and let them speak for themselves and this first track is an underwater or under ice recording of Weddell seals which had gathered underneath these huge pressure ridges of sea ice a sort of crumple zone near the coast where the the wave action and the tidal action pushes huge slabs of ice up into the air like random concrete structures and the seals gather on the edges hauled out but also vocalize under the water These are my favourite animals, one of the world's top predators and probably the most intelligent animal on the planet. Orcas, killer whales, hunting Weddell seals and penguins down these narrow, 
sea ice channels that have opened up, which they cruise up and down hunting using echolocation and communicating within their social groups with these highly complex vocalizations. Thank you to Chris Watson for braving Antarctica and bringing us those rare recordings. Stay tuned for Science Questions up next. Support for Science Questions comes from the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom, participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu slash science. Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. Peter Cavanaugh of Radio New Zealand takes us to the Pope's summer home in Italy, where he meets up with the Pope's astronomer. Uh, I'm Brother Guy Consolmagno. I'm an American Jesuit working here in Castel Gandolfo, Italy, at the Pope's uh, summer home. And I'm an astronomer and a meteoriticist. I work in the field of meteorites, and I also use the telescopes in Arizona. Brother Guy trained as an astronomer at MIT in the University of Arizona, before becoming a Jesuit. He's as real a scientist as you can get, and so are his colleagues. Which begs the question, is there any real difference between his work and that of a secular astronomer? Um, we're doing exactly the same kind of research as anyone else. We publish in the same journals. We uh, work in the same committees. The big difference of being a Jesuit astronomer working for the Pope is I don't have to write grant proposals. <laughs> I get to do any kind of research that I want as long as it's good science. Because you're very well funded. Uh, well, we're, we're well enough funded. Yeah. And as Jesuits, we come cheap. Uh, I mean, our income here is about uh, 10 euros a day. But living in a community with a dozen mm. different Jesuit astronomers pooling our resources, 10 euros a day goes a long way. And so we're able to do a lot of the kind of research, especially long-term research, that uh, national observatories can't afford to do. You know, we've got people working on projects that may take 20 years to come to fruition. Some people refer to what we do as orphan science. It's the kind of science that, you know, doing a catalog of the galaxies, doing a catalog of the stars within our galaxy, it's the kind of basic data that everybody needs and no one can afford to do because you're not going to get tenure, you're not going to get prizes doing this kind of work, you're just going to wind up doing really useful stuff. All good, but why does the Catholic Church need an observatory anyway? I mean, is there a Baha'i particle accelerator? The Vatican Observatory traces its roots back to the reform of the calendar in 1582. And at that time, the Pope hired a bunch of astronomers to figure out the best way of making the calendar line up with was the seasons. Was that the Gregorian calendar? That was the Gregorian calendar, and that was Pope Gregory. 
After that time, there were a number of Jesuits at the Roman College, what's now called the Gregorian University, that continued work in astronomy for the next several hundred years. They were among the first to look through Galileo's telescope, and they endorsed Galileo's telescope. They continued to do research in developing telescopes. They invented the reflector telescope before Newton did. Uh, they came up with the first description of light as a wave. They were the first people to make a modern map of the moon using a telescope. And this astronomical work continued on until the 19th century. When Italy was unified and the papal states were basically confiscated from the pope, the Vatican was very adamant that it wanted to stay an independent country. And one way of showing its independence was to have a national observatory. In addition, in the end of the 19th century, you find the beginnings of the idea that somehow science and religion are at odds. People think that it goes back to Galileo, but actually it's a very modern kind of thing. And simply to show that that wasn't the case, Pope Leo XIII decided to found a specific Vatican observatory. So we had telescopes on the walls of the Vatican outside of St. Peter's mm. until, of course, the 1920s when city lights made that unpractical. <laughs> At that time, Italy and the uh, Pope had a concordat. This territory, which had traditionally been the summer home of popes up here on the hill south of Rome, was given back to the Vatican. So where we are now is actually technically Vatican territory. Mm. It's extraterritorial. And in the Pope's summer home in this castle at the other end of the gardens from where we are, they installed a couple of telescopes, and they did astronomy from there until about the 1980s, when again city lights made that impractical. So at that time, the observatory built a new telescope in Arizona. So that's why we've got a telescope now outside of Tucson, mm -hmm. affiliated with the University of Arizona. Mm. Now, just this year, year of astronomy, 2009, we've had one more big move, which was to come from the Pope's summer home itself to these new quarters, which are quite a bit nicer and a lot less in the traffic of all the tourists and all the other dignitaries that come and see the Pope all the time. It's a shame in that we don't have the same view of the lake and we don't have the cachet of saying, well, we're actually in the same building as the Pope. But from a practical point of view, this is a lot nicer place. <laughs> as you can tell from this echoing sound, as you can tell, we're indoors now. This building was an old Basilian convent. It might lack a view, but it is a very nice building. But it isn't finished yet and the staff are anxiously awaiting the delivery of possibly the most important piece of scientific equipment. An industrial-sized cappuccino machine, which is going to go in over there. You can see all the pipes right. things. Wow. This is the fuel behind the Vatican Observatory. Absolutely. Huh? It runs on coffee. Those late nights. And fascinatingly enough, one of the most important bits of science that I've been able to do in the last 15 years depended directly on this coffee machine. I work in meteorites. I was in New Zealand when I was going to Antarctica to collect meteorites. And one of the measurements I always wanted to make of a meteorite was the density. We've got a thousand meteorites in our collection, I'll show you. But how do you measure the density of a rock? You'd think anybody would have done that. Well, density is mass divided by volume. Mass, you put it on a scale, that's easy. Volume, how do you measure the volume of an irregular object like a meteorite? Well, you all know the story of uh, Archimedes and you know, dumping himself in the water, and the water comes up. And so, okay, you dump the meteorite. You don't want to dump a meteorite in water. <laughs> Not only does it destroy the meteorite, but the water gets into cracks. Uh -huh. And it only gets partly into cracks. You want a fluid 
that's going to completely surround the meteorite, not get into any cracks, and not contaminate it. Like, what kind of fluid is that? So I'm thinking about this while we're having coffee, and you know, it does happen, it doesn't happen very often, but uh, as we build more and more houses, we're presenting more and more targets. There is a in the water and the water comes up, and so, okay, you dump the meteorite, you don't want to dump a meteorite in water. <laughs> Not only does it destroy the meteorite, but the water gets into cracks, and it only gets partly into cracks. You want a fluid that's going to completely surround the meteorite, not get into any cracks, and not contaminate it. Like, what kind of fluid is that? So I'm thinking about this while we're having coffee, and you know, Luigi's with the coffee machine, and the spuma's going, and the noise, and all of that, and I'm pouring a bunch of sugar into my cappuccino, and I'm looking at the sugar coming off the spoon. Powders. So what you're gonna see is that we actually now use tiny glass beads, they really do look like sugar, but they're round and they pour a lot better and they're less contaminating. And using glass beads as our Archimedean fluid, we've been able to measure more than a thousand meteorites. We've come up with the densities of these meteorites. And the really fascinating thing is just as we were doing this and publishing the numbers, the first densities of asteroids came back from spacecraft, from uh, uh, adaptive optics and telescopes. And we have the numbers to show that asteroids are 30 to 50% less dense than the meteorites that come from the asteroids, which is completely mind-blowing because it shows that our understanding of what an asteroid was was completely wrong. They're not big lumps of rock. They're piles of rock with lots of pore spaces. And, you know, a much better picture of an asteroid might be from the old Star Wars movie where the Millennium Falcon is crawling into a cave. Asteroids may really have caves. They probably don't have monsters inside them, but still. <laughs> the idea that, that asteroids are these piles of rubble come from these measurements. And they come just from comparing two very simple numbers that no one had ever been able to do before. The big joke amongst astronomers is that meteoriticists are the only ones who get to touch what they study. Because unlike stars or planets, meteors come to us. Somewhere between 37,000 to 78,000 tons hit Earth each year. And sometimes they land smack on top of us. It, it does happen. It doesn't happen very often. But uh, as we build more and more houses, we're presenting more and more targets. There is a town in Connecticut where houses have twice been hit by meteorites in the same town within 10 years of each other. Again, completely at random. There was a lady sitting in a house in Alabama. The house, the, the, the meteorite came through the roof. Mm. That slowed it down enough that by the time it hit the ground and then bounced and hit her, mm. she felt it, but, you know, she survived. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing is probably more likely to happen. Now, if it happened, you know, it's like a rock falling from an airplane. It's landing at terminal velocity, and it'll hit you, yeah. and it'll get you. Well, as they say, no one has ever been killed by a meteorite and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> I imagine you can't get insurance very easily for it either. It's uh, considered <laughs> an act of God. If you come this way, to, to see a little more of the observatory here, if you come in here, I can show you the meteorites. So we're back in your office again? This is uh, both my office and my laboratory. One of the wonderful things about moving here is I finally have room to have both in the same place. In the old place, my office is on the fifth floor and my laboratory was on the ground floor. And yeah. You can imagine, you always left something at the other place. But I want to uh, pull out here the keys to show you some of the samples we have. 
Ah, so these are meteorites. And you can see that most of them are just little samples and in little glass bottles. Let me show you something that is not science fiction, but is actually for real and one of the more exciting things we've got here. This we keep locked up. And we've got down here, uh, where is it, where is it, where is it? Here it is. It's a meteorite called Nakla. Now, Nakla fell in Egypt in 1911. Story is it killed a dog when it landed, so these things do. And at the time, they just thought it's a nice meteorite. It looks a little different from the others. It's only in the last 20 years that we've been able to understand the chemistry of it enough to realize that this rock is not four and a half billion years old like all the other meteorites. It's only one billion years old. This rock is not full of metallic iron like all the meteorites. All the iron's been oxidized. In fact, there are carbonates in here, which means that if it's younger than any moon rock, it came from a body bigger than the moon. If it's full of carbonates, it may have come from a place with carbon dioxide in the air. And not this particular rock, but others like it, have tiny bubbles in the rock that contain gases, which when you measure the gas, are exactly the same as the Martian atmosphere. So the conclusion is, I'm not going to let you open it, but you can at least hold it. The conclusion is you're holding a piece of Mars. <laughs> that is amazing. Exactly. It's amazing to us, and you know we've lived with the idea for 20 years, and we're still not used to so it. So is this the only example of that? It's that not the only example. It's certainly one of the larger examples. That's about 150 grams. Wow. And notice one thing: it's not red. It's no, green. It's, not red. it's because it's a it's a piece of uh, instatite and olivine from the interior. And you can see that the black outer coating, which is what happened when it came through the Earth's atmosphere, the rock melted as it came through. I just want to draw your attention to this here. I wondered if you could explain that for me and read ah, it out for yes. me. Yes. Well, this is a beautiful picture of a comet. And it was given to me as a little award after I gave a talk for a friend of mine who was a scientist. And he thought this was a, a wish that I think speaks much to the way that all meteoriticists view the world. I'm wondering if you could read it. Okay, wishes. When you wish upon a falling star, your dreams can come true. Unless it's really a meteorite hurling to the earth, which will destroy all life, then you're pretty much hosed no matter what you wish for, unless it's death by meteor. <laughs> <laughs> if you got to go, it would yeah, certainly be a dramatic be. way of going. <laughs> Ryan Amar is the student reading from the award. He reluctantly handed back the meteorite, and we followed Brother Guy into the next room, where more treasures were stored. This is a library. Um, most people think that astronomy is done at a telescope. You're lucky if you spend five nights a year at the telescope. You do most of your work in front of a computer, and an awful lot of your work in a library, just digging up references, trying to figure out what's been done before, really what was that number that I kind of remembered but I can't find. And having a good library in one place is incredibly important. But the other thing that goes on in the world of astronomy, and especially here at the Vatican Observatory, is history of astronomy. I was invited a couple of years ago to help write a chapter for the opening chapter for a book on Europa that's coming out. Oh, they, they finally remembered my work. Yeah, the opening chapter was the history chapter. <laughs> Everything I've done is now considered historical. It's so old and obsolete. 
But it led to the question, well, who was the first person to think that the moons of Jupiter might be made of ice? And it turns out to be a really tricky question to answer. So I spent a couple of weeks in the library going through the old observatory records, going through textbooks from the 19th century. And what I want to show you here are some of the books that we have that date back. Here, for instance, is the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. You can see here the date 1795. But up on the top shelf, it goes back to 1665. Wow. It is uh, you know, volume one, number one. You can actually pull off a couple of these volumes here and see papers by uh, Isaac Newton. You can go and see not only what he was actually saying, but the words they used, the assumptions he made, and just having these books available is fantastic to be able to do history of astronomy. And as I go through here, sort of pointing out what we've got, as I said, I've never given this tour before, so I'm never sure exactly where things are. But we've got someplace in here. This is not a first edition of Copernicus. It's only a third edition. <laughs> it's from, uh, as I recall, this one, it's from, can you read your Roman numerals? 1617. This is two years before all the books of Copernicus were ordered to be corrected by the Vatican. You know, where he says that the Earth goes around the sun, you have to cross that out and say, you can calculate by pretending the Earth goes around the sun. Well, this is the copy from the Vatican Library, and as far as I can tell, nobody bothered correcting it. And there's the famous image. Again, most people looking at a, a science book, they look at the pretty pictures, they read the title, they read the figure captions, and they move on. This is a terrible picture, in fact, because it looks like he's saying all the planets go in nice circles around the sun, when in fact that wasn't what he was saying at all. His real theory was a whole lot more complicated, but everybody just remembers this picture, and they never bothered reading the full detail of what he was doing, which is mathematically quite more sophisticated than that. The boys' winning short film was on extrasolar planets and referenced Italian astronomer Giordano Bruno. Bruno was one of the first to suggest that our sun was simply a star like many others, an extraordinary piece of thinking for the time. Ah, up there. Naturally, the boys were keen to know if the library contained any of his works. We don't, and part of the reason is he wasn't really a scientist. He was a crackpot. <laughs> he was a crackpot who happened to get a couple of things right by accident, sort of like a stopped clock is right twice a day. And, uh, but he was an astrologer. He believed in magic. He had this magical way of remembering things. Uh, and he managed to make enemies of everybody in Europe on all sides, Protestants, Catholics, atheists. Everybody was mad at him by the end. What happened to him was not a good thing. He was you know, arrested, and after 10 years of refusing to admit he was wrong, they burned him. You don't want to do that to people. It's a wrong thing to do. But you also don't want to make him a hero of science because he was more like uh, von Däniken or, you know, well, Velikovsky or the, the other people who were more famous for being famous than for anything he actually said as a scientist. Now, this is... Um, there goes your movie. Exactly. <laughs> Why, did you talk about uh, Bruno? Yeah, we movie? did. We actually reenacted the, the burning at the stake oh. at the start. Who did, who did you burn? <laughs> Me. Oh, okay. And yet here you are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I... Uh, I'm not, a big, I'm not a big Bruno fan, mostly. Uh, 
because I've had to deal with you know people who believe in crackpot theories. Now this one, Newton's Principia. If you really want to see yeah. the beginning of science, it's this one. Again, it's not a first edition. It's only a second edition. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing you notice about it, it's just it's in such beautiful shape, which means probably nobody read it. <laughs> there is a lot of math in there, and it's uh, pretty complicated stuff. But all of science eventually, essentially, all of science essentially starts from this book and Newton's Laws. It really wasn't until Newton came up with the laws to explain why the orbits worked the way they did that astronomers finally accepted the Copernican theory. I mean, the Copernican theory did a great job of describing where the planets were, better, the Kepler theory. But they couldn't explain why it worked. And if you're doing history of astronomy, uh, among other things, you have to be able to handle the Latin. Mm. Kepler's Latin was really, really difficult. And Latin scholars to this day have a hard time translating what he wanted to say. It turns out that Galileo was awful in Latin. You know, Galileo never graduated. He never got a degree. Basically, he flunked Latin. And uh, one of the reasons why he rails on at great length about how science should not be based on the classics was he wasn't very good at reading the classics. <laughs> he had all of these books from Kepler describing elliptical orbits. He never read them. <laughs> he never understood them. He never referred to them. He thought to the end of his days that the orbits were all circular. The telescopes are housed at the other end of the garden. To get to them, you leave Vatican territory, go back into Italy, through the town of Castel Gandolfo, and back onto Vatican land once more. And as we traveled, we were reminded that this is not just a science institute, or even just the Pope's summer home. It's also a town with a long and often hard human history. Also, you'll notice all the pock marks on the walls. That dates from 1944. Ah, yes. And an American fighter who strafed the place. Even though this is Vatican territory... I'll wait till he goes. Even though this is technically Vatican territory, there were... I mean, from here you can see the ocean. They invaded at Anzio. You can see Anzio from here. They landed there in January of 44. They did not get to Rome until June of 44. During all that time, there was just incredible battles up and down the coast here. And all the people who lived nearby fled to the gardens and lived here as uh, refugees for about four months. At one point, one of the buildings housing refugees was flattened by American bombs. 400 people were killed and these pockmarks are left over from the war. So you, it's so beautiful and it's so peaceful and you forget that uh, within the memory of people walking around here, this was the site of one of the worst wars. The gardens that we went through were built by the Emperor Domitian as a place to build a palace. And the idea behind that palace was to show off his power. He fell he was also the first Roman emperor, by the way, to systematically persecute Christians. And his palace is now gardens to the Pope. <laughs> this building behind us, which we're going in, where the telescopes are housed, was built by Maffeo Barberini as a summer home. He became Pope Urban VIII. He was the Pope who called in Galileo. And it's now an astronomical observatory. So the idea is watch out for a nemesis, you know. It, uh, yeah. Whoever you think your enemies are, they'll come back to get you. 
Okay, with this group, I think we're going to walk up the stairs. There is a tiny elevator, but it's too tiny to fit most of us in unless we did like three trips. So. that dates from 1935, German optics. And you can see it says Carl Zeiss Jena, yeah. now it's Eastern Germany. The original lens had a slight defect in it. They sent it back to Jena to get fixed, and then the war came up, and then the Russians came, and we never got the lens back. So we've got a post-World War II Western German lens which is still really good. We also have on this telescope, this, which allows you to look at the sun. It's got an H-alpha filter. And the sun's out, but unfortunately, nowadays, this part of the uh, last couple of years, there have been no sunspots. So there's not really a whole lot to look at. trying to look at the sun is to do this without blinding yourself. Yes. Yeah. And the way you do it is by looking at shadows. Uh-huh. It's not all that active, but it's certainly better than nothing. And there is a little prominence on the corner here where I'm aiming. What Brother Guy disarmingly calls a little prominence is actually a solar flare, roughly the size of planet Earth. After watching it through the telescope, Adam Simpson had some questions to ask. So what stops you being blinded by looking through this? What stops it? Yeah, is it Virtually the all the light except the light being emitted by one particular line of hydrogen is being cut away. Oh, okay. And so that's why it's very red colored. It's just this H-alpha line that we're looking at. But that also allows us to see, in high contrast, you can see the little prominences along the edge. You see the little yeah. things that look like flames. And then there is one sort of sunspot region down Just to the down bottom, the bottom left. Yeah. yeah. So what do you see when you see a star at night lights? Right? Is it sort of Strangely enough, to... stars are very boring to look at in a telescope oh. because they're just points. They're so small and they're so far away that even in the biggest telescope, most stars are still just points of just light. Points of light. But it's when you take the starlight and run it through a prism and you start measuring the chemical composition of the star that things get interesting. Okay. Uh, the other things that you do look at with a telescope are not stars, but nebulae or clusters of stars or galaxies. And those are fantastic to look at, even in a small telescope, even in a pair of binoculars. Yeah. On the roof of the observatory, next to the entrance to the second telescope, there's a plaque dedicating the site to God. Because naturally enough, being members of a religious order, the staff here are serious about their work not just for its own sake. They have another reason for trying to understand the universe. Does anybody here speak Latin? Oh, no. You do. No. You're an expert in Latin, I can tell, with the red hair. <laughs> Deum, what, what does that word mean? God okay. the creator. Creator. God the creator. Venite adoremus. 
How is your Christmas carol? Venite adoremus. Oh, come let us adore him. Yeah, Very yeah. good. So you now have translated that. Well, oh, come let us adore God the Creator. Ah. <laughs> I wonder the teacher accompanying the boys on the trip is Tony Bunting. You know, coming from that mm -hmm. scientific background and, and acknowledging God as creator, does it change the way you view science compared to perhaps How one without do? a faith? Having not had not a faith, I can't make the comparison. I do know that it doesn't change the science I do, but it changes the deeper reason why I do it. Um... And it's really easy when you become a professional scientist to get all caught up in grantsmanship and how much money and prestige and who's going to be first to publish and all that sort of thing. When you're doing it just for the sheer love of it, to me, that's the same thing as doing it for the love of God. The love of that, that joy you get when you make a discovery, that sense of rightness when the theory works. To me, I see that as manifestations of, you know, sort of God cheering me on and saying, yeah, you got it. Let me show you the next one. And in a sense, it's like playing a game with God. Other people would use totally different words. And yet every scientist I know who spends their life doing science is doing it primarily for the fun of it, primarily for the love of it. You're not going to get rich being a scientist. No. And to me, that sense of love is a sign of God. Do you think that your theories would have a different perspective in the first place? Or I hope not, because my theories are probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I know my science is 90% wrong. It's just that 10% is why you, you do it and you right. hold on to it. And that 50 years from now, people are going to go back and say, he was saying that? That fool, what did he know? But that's okay. That's the way science is supposed to work. This program was brought to you by Radio New Zealand and Science Questions. Thank you for listening. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Gwynn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. As the nation commemorates the 150th anniversary of the American Civil War, learn how that conflict affected Utah. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. One of the saddest episodes in American history was the Civil War, fought from 1861 to 1865 between Northern Union forces and the Southern Confederacy. No battles were waged in the Utah Territory, nor did Utah send troops for either side. But despite its lack of involvement in the Civil War, Utah's loyalty in that conflict was of major interest to leaders in Washington as part of the larger struggle for control over the Western Territories. Those who doubted Utah's loyalty did so because Mormons remained openly bitter about being driven from the United States and were alienated from mainstream America by polygamy. Mormons also believed in states' rights, as did the Confederacy. Moreover, Utah was surrounded by Arizona, New Mexico, and Southern California, all of which expressed secessionist leanings. But Mormon leader Brigham Young was anxious to affirm Utah's loyalty to the Union, Asked to send the first message from Salt Lake City on the newly completed Transcontinental Telegraph in 1861, Young used the opportunity to send U.S. President Abraham Lincoln a message that signaled Utah's position on the Civil War. It read, 
Utah has not seceded, but is firm for the Constitution and laws of our once happy country. The following year, Young attempted to secure statehood for Utah, believing that the best show of allegiance was trying to get into the Union while others were trying to get out. Despite these reassurances, Union soldiers were ordered to Utah under the guise of protecting the overland mail route. Young provided the Utah Territorial Militia to protect the route, but when the federal troops arrived in October 1862, they established Camp Douglas to watch over the Mormons for the rest of the war. Although distrust remained, Utahns celebrated Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration in March 1865 and the end of the war that April. They also mourned with the rest of the country only days later when President Lincoln was assassinated. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were done by Michelle Hill. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Support for Science Questions is provided by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD 191.5, Logan. Thank you for listening to Utah Public Radio. Check out our community calendar at upr.org. The time is now 10 o'clock.